This morning's passage will be from John chapter 4. So if you'll begin just turning there with me. It should be a familiar passage to us in that this is the passage where Jesus interacts with this woman from Samaria. And she's often called the woman at the well uh, in culture. And she's uh, popular not only in church culture, but also just in popular culture. And uh, we'll spend some time looking at her and her interaction with Jesus today and how that speaks to our lives today. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help as we get into his word. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us. Again, we come to a familiar story, and, and so often it's easy for us to hang on to what we want to see here or what we think we should see um, instead of really looking at the text for what it is. And so help us to do that. Uh, we know that it's your word, so therefore it's perfect, and in its perfection it should show us our own sin. And so we pray that that you would do that. Show us our sin so that we might run to you in repentance. Guide us in wisdom. Teach us your truth from your word here today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when I was in fifth grade, I was at a new school. And this was the first few weeks at my brand new school. And I was kind of... Uh, didn't know very many people. I knew just maybe one or two people at the school. And we were sitting there at the cafeteria, and you can kind of imagine it's this room that has tables that come down out of the walls on either side. And these tables are kind of held up by the walls by these little attachment places. Well, I was sitting there next to one of those places as, you know, we were sitting in the tables. They were lowered down, obviously. And there's these little holes in the table. Well, I thought it would be a fun game to stick my finger in the hole. And uh, lo and behold, of course, it didn't come out. And so there I am at a brand new school with my finger in the hole in a cafeteria. And my best friend, who's now a pastor and a uh, church planner in Austin, Texas, so he's gotten better. Uh, he he uh, told me that they were going to have to cut my finger off. Uh, so, of course, I flipped out and I was crying all over the place. Uh, after a few minutes, I actually passed out uh, from that. I, I typically do that. And then when I woke up, I'm sitting there with my fingers out, and it's swollen up, and there's soap and oil all over the place. And, and I was sitting there next to some eighth graders that I didn't know. And so, of course, I had to walk back into class, and you know the looks that you get from people. And I just wanted to be away from people. I did not want to be around them. I'm a pretty shy person anyway, but now I had all this embarrassment lumped onto me as everyone in the school saw me freak out at the, the thought of having to lose my finger. And I uh, had tons of embarrassment, tons of shame heaped upon me, and I wanted to just leave school. And so then I had planned on not telling my mom and uh, just kind of letting things pass, but, you know, moms find out things. And so she asked me about it, and then I was embarrassed again. They didn't want to talk about it because I was afraid I was going to get into trouble. But she wanted to comfort me. She wanted to offer me some encouragement. And she did. And I, and I still hear this story from time to time from my friend who told me I was going to lose my finger and people who remember it. Um, I, mean, I wanted to run, and I wanted to hide, and I wanted to completely 
remove myself from all the people there because of my own stupidity and sticking my finger in the hole in the cafeteria table. I brought this shame upon myself. But in the midst of that, folks love me anyway. And thankfully, we don't stay fifth graders forever because I would probably still be doing stupid stuff like that today. Um, but today, we're going to read about a woman who had a very similar situation, yet a lot different, obviously. I mean, it was similar in the fact that she had done some things that may have wanted, may have caused her to want to hide and find comfort in a place where people were not. Because people look and say things. But it's different in the fact that her transgressions were much more complicated and much more severe than a run-in with a cafeteria table. And so we're going to get into her story. We're going to see how Jesus' love for her brought her to a place of personal worship and a desire to tell the world about her Savior. And we're going to see that, that we are just like her. Oftentimes, we want to hide. Yet, in Jesus, there's no need to. In Jesus, we are forgiven. We, And the correct response to shame and to guilt and embarrassment is to, is to live lives of worship rather than hide. And so in this passage, we're going to look at two main ideas, the woman's desire for seclusion and the Savior's desire for his child. So with that... Let's look at John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Let's stand together in the reading of God's Word. John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink where his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty, or have to come here to drink water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have five husbands, 
and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in, Jeru that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So here in this text, we have Jesus, beginning of this text, baptizing. And it says, it lets us know it's not actually him that's baptizing, it's disciples that are baptizing. And it also gives us this uh, idea that Jesus is now baptizing more than John. And this reminds us of the text from last week where John said, I must decrease, he must increase. And that's exactly what's happening. Jesus' ministry is growing. The ministry of John the Baptist is decreasing. And we see that. Jesus is out here. He's with his disciples. They're baptizing women and men from all faiths. And as they depart Judea, they're going to, to Galilee. And this is um, the, the geography here is uh, Galilee is north, and there's this big open area that they had to go through. Jesus wasn't afraid to confront the people. He wasn't afraid to confront the Pharisees. He just realized that it wasn't his time yet. And so he had to kind of go north, past Jeru or away from Jerusalem, to get away from this influence of the Pharisees. And, as we'll see in this text, he had an appointment with in Samaria with a woman at the well. Samaritans and Jews really didn't mix, and the text lets us know that. I don't want to make too much of this, but the division between Judea and Samaria goes all the way back to the division of the northern and southern kingdoms and the death of Solomon. The Samaritans followed the Torah, but believed that worship of the Lord should take place on this place called Mount Gerizim, rather than Mount Zion. Even though their temple was wrecked by the Assyrians, they still worshipped at the ruins, the Samaritans did. And so there was hostility, this inherent hostility between these two groups of people. And so it would have been really odd for Jewish men to trek through the middle of Samaria rather than skirt around it to the east to go to Galilee. Jesus made a different kind of trek. He had a divine appointment with this woman. And I think that we'll see this week, and we'll continue talking about this next week, that the impact of this visit was an everlasting one. And so let's look here at this woman, this woman's desire for seclusion. 
says, Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting at the well. I think this is a good reminder to us that our Lord Jesus didn't float through the air. He uh, was fully man like you and I are, and it would have been tiring for him to walk through the desert from one place to another. They didn't, couldn't jump in the car, and Jesus could have snapped his fingers and been there, but he was a man, and he chose to not do that, and he walked. and He was weary. He needed a drink. And so he comes to this place where there's a well, and it wouldn't have been uncommon to see a well there in the middle of this place, and it wouldn't have been uncommon for people to stop and drink as they traveled. It was the sixth hour, so this was noon, a long journey in the desert, really hot place in the world. It makes sense that Jesus is coming here to drink. However, what doesn't make sense is for this woman to be there in the middle of the day. Because most people, particularly the women of the culture, would have gathered water. And they would have done so first thing in the morning. When it's nice and cool still, it's not hot. Carrying water is a big, a big chore because water is not light. And so they would have done this in the morning or they would have done this in the evening. And there would have been lots of people gathering there to do this. This is kind of the, uh, you know, the social time of the day, the morning and the evening. And another thing that doesn't make sense is that Jesus speaks to her, a strange woman that he doesn't know, and a Samaritan woman. Women had lower status in this society, and it would not have been a common thing for a man just to walk up to a strange woman and speak to her. And for Jesus being a Jew and and this woman being a Samaritan, it was even a more strange occurrence. Yet Jesus, the creator of all things, the creator of all people, he came to this earth to save his people from their sins. And this lady apparently is a part of that mission. We'll see that. And so he says, give me a drink. Since his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman, kind of taken aback by his request, reminds him, that he isn't supposed to talk to her. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. How is it that you, a Jew, and Jesus, get, I mean, he's the creator of all things, and this woman is like, hey, you're not, this, you're not supposed to be doing this. So Jesus takes this conversation, this mundane conversation about water. Here's a thirsty man. There's a woman who wants to come out in the middle of the day and hide from everybody. And he takes this mundane conversation. He goes into something much deeper. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And as we see the ministry of Jesus, he is a master at making even the most mundane conversation, one about water one about thirst, and turning it into one that has eternal value. And I think we could learn a lot from him as believers. One of the things that fascinates me about Jesus and his ministry is that he talked to all sorts of people. He talked to people who thought they were much better than him in the Pharisees, and he talked to people who wanted to crawl away and be not seen like this Samaritan woman. And in both cases, he's able to take conversations 
and turn them on their head and make them have eternal significance. And you can really sense the urgency in his mission as well. He made every opportunity to call people to belief. He made every opportunity to preach the kingdom of God. And his response is basically the effect of saying, you have no idea who you're talking to. I have the ability to give you living water. And she still misses the point, because what does she say? It's like, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well's deep. Where do you get this living water? And then she even draws from the fact that, are you greater than Jacob? You know, because who's Jacob in the, this culture? He's, he's like the top. He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's very proud of the fact that she's a Samaritan. She's very proud of the fact that this is Jacob's well, and here they are drinking from it. And how are you going to give me some sort of water, and you don't even have this ability to, to get it? How are you going to do this? Are you greater than Jacob? This is a bit of slide on Jesus the Jew. Jesus that had no bucket to get his special water with. And what does he quote? Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become a, in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This morning, in the call to worship, I hope you noticed in the passage there, in Isaiah 12, that's why I chose this. Look there at the third line, verse 3 of Isaiah 12. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and in that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, proclaim that his name is exalted. Isaiah 55, turn there with me. Isaiah 55. Let's look at the first five verses of Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I make him a witness to the peoples. A leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And the nation that you did not know shall run you. Because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Skip ahead to 58, Isaiah 58. Let's look at 11 and 12 of Isaiah 58. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water 
whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called a repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. What is this language of the water, of the springs of eternal life? This is the language of redemption. Sir, what does she say then? Sir, give me this water that I do not have to come here. That I do not have to come here to draw water. Is it because she really wanted a source of water? Or that she never wanted to go back to the well again? Why does she want to stay hidden? We're about to get into it. She has a storied past. It involves several people, probably right there in the town that she lives in. It wasn't like we could just hop up and move from place to place back then. Probably right there in the town that she lives in is all the stories of her past. She probably can't show her head anywhere. When she comes face to face, who, who offers one for her relief, who offers one for relief for her shame and her guilt, she doesn't know what to think. And I think it's good for us, too. We, I think we can relate with this woman. Why do we want to stay hidden? You know, I, I always take things back to Genesis 3. But I want us to see how the root of our problem, in Genesis 3, we see the root of our problem. And we have to hack at the root in order to see a solution. But in Genesis 3, verse 7, what does it say about them? after they ate the fruit, that they knew they were naked and they sewed leaves together for themselves and they made loincloths. They saw their sin. And what did they want to do immediately after seeing their sin? They wanted to hide. They wanted to hide themselves and then they, they wanted to hide their appearance and then they went and physically hid themselves in the garden from the only one who could see them wherever he was, that they wanted to hide. And here is this woman who has every opportunity to hide. So consider your own behavior as you go about life. Do you hide in shadows in certain situations, and why do you do that? Do you avoid people because they have the goods on you, or you don't want them to? Do you avoid places because the people there know your story? These stories call shame and guilt. This isn't like a shy versus outgoing thing. I can't let them know. They can't see me. We all have those people that when we, if we saw them at Walmart, we would try to turn around and walk the other way. You know, we, I see this in my kids. When they do something wrong, what do they want to do? They want to, they want to like put it under the rug. They want to hide it. At school, I see this. When we do labs at school, and I'm in this little room with lots of tables around it. And when we do labs, we use lots of glass. And inevitably, with a room full of 14-year-olds, what's going to happen to some of that glass? I've got concrete floor. And I will walk back to the source of the glass. And it's not like I have this vast room. It's not hard to hear where the breaking comes from. And I'll say, what happened? And they'll look at me and they'll say nothing. And they'll try to sweep the glass into the corner so that I can't see it. Because they're afraid that they broke a 65-cent flask or whatever. They want to hide. 
they're desperate to get out of sight of the one they see as authority because they broke something, they did something wrong. Are we doing the same thing? You know, I, th- I think today more than ever, with our electronic devices, our phones, our tablets, and whatever, people are able to hide better and better. I talk to students all the time. I call this, I call them staring at their phones as they're walking down the hall, the, the zombie apocalypse. Uh, because that's, you know, they just kind of look like zombies as they're walking. And I'll talk to kids like, why do you do that? And one kid was pretty, uh, pretty really, uh, real blunt with me about it. She was like, well, uh, I carry my phone. Like they'll actually t- make sure they take their phones if they leave the room to go to the bathroom or whatever. Because, and what she said is, if I see someone, I want to act like I'm texting so that I don't have to talk to them. And I said, why don't you want to just speak to someone and say, hey, she said, I don't know what else to say other than hello, so I just don't say anything. What does that say? We don't want to say anything more than hello, because anything more than hello or the weather or the, the, the score of the baseball game tells us something, tells them something about who we are and therefore lets people into our lives where we don't want them because we want to hide. And Jesus is, is here, and he wants to help this woman. And he has a gift to offer her that is beyond anything that she could ever ask or imagine. I think it's easy for us to see ourselves in this woman. I can see myself in this woman. Because I often think that my sin is much easier to deal with if I can just hide it. But I continue to be reminded of the fact that Jesus knows my heart. And even though he knows my sin, he continues to come after me nonetheless. And So that brings us to this next point. The Savior's desire for his child. And so here we have this woman. She comes to this place. Sir, give me this water so that I can never be thirsty. So I don't have to come here to draw water. And he says to her, he kind of like flips the conversation on her completely. Go, call your husband and come here. An interesting uh, thing to say. And she answers, she says, I have no husband. He said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. You have five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. You know, I think we could look at Jesus' question and maybe think that it seems, or his statement to her, and maybe it seems divisive or intrusive. But again, he's the Lord of creation. He asks what he wants, and he asks everything for a reason. He's not a plain So Jesus' question serves as a way to get this woman to come out of her superficial little shell she's in and speak to Jesus about the real issue of her sin. Go call your husband. I can give him some water too. And her answer is kind of a non-answer, but the truth, I have no husband. And Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. And notice her response. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Really? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So, what does she ask him? It's a theological question. It's a common tactic, right? To divert conversations away from what we really want to talk about or what the person really wants to know, and we'll divert it away that something that we're maybe interested in or maybe something that we can get into a longer conversation. Uh, we see this all the time on TV, particularly this time of uh, year, uh, this section of the uh, 
our season, I guess, of the of our country where people are getting elected, they'll often be asked a question and they'll just completely start talking about something else that had nothing to do with the question that they were asked. She's almost like a politician here. She's just trying to divert. She's trying to skirt around the question. We have those things in our own life, too, don't we, that we, we probably don't want to talk about, so we'll readily skirt the, the question and say something else. And she asks a good question. It's not a bad question. It's at the heart of the problem between Jews and Samaritans. But it has nothing to do with the matter at hand, which is her soul. And his response is great because not only does he answer her question, but he also deals with her problem. And I think it's a good guide for us in our own conversations with people. He first answers her question. Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. What is he saying? Pretty soon, it's not going to matter. I'm here. I am, I am the one. I am the, I am the son of God. Come down to earth. You will worship me. Pretty soon, it's not going to matter. At the, at the root of his question or at the root of his statement is basically, who do you worship? The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Woman, who do you worship? I mean, this is a verse that deserves its own sermon, So, it, but it fits into the larger context as a way to point this woman away from her desire to shrink back into herself and toward her need to worship the Lord of creation, the Lord of all things, the King of kings, Jesus Christ. And she interpreted this as a need to know God. I know the Messiah is coming, who is the Christ. When he comes, he's going to tell us all things. When he comes, he's going to tell us all things, because what is the implication here? He will tell us all things because he's from God, because he is God. When the Messiah comes, he will finally deliver his people. What is this woman, woman longing for? She's longing for a Savior to deliver her from the trouble of her life, from all of the complexity of her questions concerning the worship of God. She's in need of redemption. And Jesus has now brought her full circle to see her need. And he says to her, what she probably already guessed from the beginning, I who speak to you am he. I am that I am. I am your God. I am your deliverer. Next week, we're going to look at this woman's response, and she runs away believing. She runs and tells her village of everything that she's seen and she's heard. I mean, what, what we do with Jesus' statement here in verse 26, what we do with this statement is shapes who we are as people, as believers. What is this statement for us? This is something that we have to continue to grab a hold of. We have to continue to grab a hold of this promise. Otherwise, we remain in the garden naked and ashamed. 
finding whatever leaves we can find to cover ourselves. And we forget the gospel. We forget that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit, the new covenant promises, has set you free from the law of sin and death, naked and ashamed, surely dead in your trespasses. Jesus is our Redeemer. He alone sets us free from not getting to know people because we don't want them to see us. Because we don't want them to see all of our sin, all of our crazy. We only have God to fear, not man. God offers us his hand as we walk through this life. Just as he offered this woman living water in Jesus, brothers and sisters, we have that living water. The water that we have has become a spring of water welling up in us to eternal life. We should overflow with this love that he's given us. And it's not always easy. It's not something that we can just simply say, okay, I'll stop, and I'll, I'll stop hiding, I'll live my life without shame. We can't just do that. That'd be great. Thankfully in heaven we get that, but on this side, it is a process. This woman may have never went back to the well at noon again, but I doubt it. Because it takes time to heal. Sin and death stick with us here on this earth to some degree as long as we walk here. But thankfully, we have a Redeemer who's delivered us from both, and he has a place for us in heaven where we have no more sin, where we have no more shame. Sin and death are gone. Christian, cling to your Redeemer. Cling to the gospel. For the non-believer, the admonition is the same. Yet, the unbeliever is currently relying on whatever we can, they can find on this earth Rather than closing, clothing themselves in the righteousness of Christ, they will clothe themselves in whatever, anything to hide their sin and shame. They will walk down the hall with a phone in front of their face rather than see anybody or interact with anybody, rather than come face to face with their Redeemer. So for the unbeliever, call upon the name of the Lord. He is the Deliverer. He is the Redeemer of your soul. He is the one you need. So to close... It excites me to think that next week we can talk about this woman as she goes into her city and tells the other people of what she's seen and what she's heard, because this is our task as believers. But we ourselves need the gospel in order to do that. We don't stop needing it just because we're saved. We need it all the more to remind us that we are his and in him we have no fear of shame. and We have no guilt. Let us live as if we are free. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we are like this woman at the well. And we would readily find every reason to not talk to you, every reason to run and hide, because we think we can adequately cover our guilt and our shame and whatever else is hanging on to us because of our sin. We think we can do that, but ultimately we need what you offer us. That's living water. We need the righteousness that you give us in order to clothe us that we might be set free. So Lord, help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.